The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information about Jason can be found at deroshi-meyer.org. Today we are in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs, of all books in the Bible, is a parenting manual. It's given to parents, and over and over again, the call of the book is, Listen up, my son. Listen up, my son. This is a very complementarian book. And I say that because it assumes that at the center of a community is a family, and at the center of a family is a dad and a mom who are going to, first and foremost, instruct their sons how to be godly men. Because if men can rise up and be godly, the women will be there following in their footsteps. This is a book that is about wisdom, that that is broad enough to reach both men and women at all different ages. But first and foremost, it's targeted to training noblemen. The call is not, listen, my daughter. It appears to be, listen, my son, very intentionally. Even though the word for son can be very broad and even be translated child, what we're going to see right off the bat is that that wisdom is portrayed as a female. And one of the reasons it is is because men desire women. It's designed intentionally to portray wisdom as something that in the soul of every young man should be desirable. And then foolishness also, Dame Folly, is portrayed as a lady. And yet where the book begins using figurative language, and even wisdom, lady wisdom is going to have a voice. She's going to call out. We're going to hear her talk and and refer to herself in first person. At the end of the book... The imagery has been laid aside, and now we get a portrait of a real girl. That's what frames the book. Wisdom portrayed as a woman, personified, and then the real deal, a woman of wisdom at the end. This is a book, actually, I, I mean, I, I've, I've spent a reasonable amount of time in, but... I still have had lots of questions, and this week I probably spent 15 hours in Proverbs, and so I'm bringing that to bear on today's message. Um, This has been a great journey. After getting to teach in pastoring for four years and then academic ministry, I'm in my ninth year as a professor, getting to teach like this, Old Testament survey in the classroom, and in in this Sunday school class, it's, it's, get, it's pushing me in ways that getting to teach Old Testament survey every year for the last nine years, multiple times, um, it's just, it's helped me uh, even take it to a new level of, of sensing um, pastorally, how do I get this across? Today, my purpose is to try to help you read Proverbs better. So it's going to be a lot of instruction heralding a little, a lot of instruction, and and then there will be more heralding in weeks to come from the book of Proverbs.
Let's begin. Here's the book at a glance. You get this brief preamble that we're going to look at very shortly. Then you get nine chapters of prologue. These are not the classical kind of proverbs that we see in the rest of the book, those little short one-line pithy statements that are so memorable. Here you get more extended dialogues, a father instructing his child, and then even the, as, as the or, or a mother instructing uh, her child. And as the instruction comes, at times even wisdom takes on a voice. And then we come to chapter 10, and chapters 10 through 31, 9 are just these collections of um, various collections from different sages, wise men from the past, their collection of proverbs, all packaged together so that we can work through them. And 31 days in a month, how many of you have read, at least at some season in your life, read a proverb a day? It's, it's a good thing to do. And then we come to the epilogue, and it it parallels the prologue where wisdom is portrayed as a woman. So open up your Bibles to the book of Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 1. May the Lord grant us wisdom even as we read today. What is this book about? All the former writings, Ruth, Psalms, Job, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs, and Lamentations. After the dark history of Israel that started strong and then went all the way down into exile, the prophets raised up to call them and out of their sin, and they didn't listen. And the prophets called to give clarity why they even ended up in exile. It wasn't because God left, it was because the people sinned. Then God gives us this portion, this section of commentary... The story isn't building. They left us in exile at the end of the book of Kings. That's where the story stopped temporarily. Then we got the commentary of why they ended up in exile in the the latter prophets. And now we're in the former writings, which have really taken a turn. These are books of hope. Beginning with the book of Ruth, there's this vision of the messianic kingdom, the Messiah, the hope when All evil will be put down. And Proverbs is given now, placed right here in the Bible to give clarity, one of the many books to give clarity about how should a people live who are hoping in the kingdom of God when it hasn't fully come yet. And that's why you and I, even though Jesus has come as suffering servant, we're still awaiting for him to do the mopping up um, work and clean out all evil to finally bring justice to bear and to overcome even the sins that we're still battling in our soul and the sickness that can still rip at our families. We're longing for that, and because of that, we still need a book like Proverbs to help give clarity about what life should look like for those who are hoping in the kingdom of God. And this gets extremely practical. So, Proverbs 1 Verse, uh, first seven verses. All these are the Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, the king of Israel. Hope in the king of Israel. And in light of that hope, the promises made to David, the baton is passed to Solomon. From that one who received the baton, one more picture that an ultimate king of David would come, this is what flows forth from him, the wisdom of the book. 
First off, we see a goal for the book. We see it in verses 2 through 4. I give you these to know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to youth. So there's a goal of producing knowledge, producing upright practice, helping people make good choices. Specifically youth. They need to receive, to to be able to make good choices. Wisdom is choice-making literature. Verses 5 and 6. Let the wise hear and increase learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance. To understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. Wisdom in Scripture is directly connected with God's order of the universe. We learn that God made the world in wisdom. Wisdom was right there at the beginning, and now we're called to be wise. God has structured His universe perfectly, wisely. And the level to which mankind has wisdom is the level to which we find ourselves aligning with right order in the world. So what verses... 5 and 6 say is that wisdom is a pursuit of understanding. But not only a pursuit of understanding, a, a pursuit of preserving order. So I get that from, I want, the, I want you to increase learning, and then, once that learning is there, I want you to obtain guidance so that you can know which way to live. Wisdom relates to greater understanding of right order, and something in our souls that is then moved upon to help preserve right order. That's what wise living is, where we're walking in the paths of righteousness, in the paths of uprightness, in the paths that honor our God. The, the world is filled with wisdom. This week I spent an hour and a half probably just reading through Proverbs outside of the Bible. There's vast amounts of Proverbs from Egypt and from Assyria, even from the land of Palestine, Canaan, where Israel was planted. Proverbs from outside the Bible. But what's missing is Yahweh. They can sound so much very similar, and I I would imagine some of you who have traveled the world have found Proverbs that sound right, and yet pagans created them. They sound very much like Proverbs of Scripture, and yet what is missing? Yahweh. And that's why verse 7 says there's a starting place for real wisdom. The starting place is the fear of God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. If God is the source of right order, then real wise living will only come when we find ourselves submitting to His definition of order. That is, we fear Him. We don't expect him to fear us. We don't put ourselves in the position where he is. He's not the king. I mean, we're not the king. He's the king. And so we have a reverence for him and awe. And to align ourselves with God's definition of right order, to live wisely, everything's going to start with a proper understanding of who our God is. Revering him. Fearing him. Work out your salvation with fear and with trembling, says Paul. For it is God 
who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Romans chapter 3, Paul says the biggest problem in this world is that no one fears our God. So we have lots of people that think they're wise, but if God, that is Yahweh, specifically God, Yahweh, as revealed in Jesus, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. That the way that God is king, the one who oversees all things, is indeed Jesus. If he's not on our radar, we don't have real wisdom yet. We can live in ways that some would call wise, but ultimately wisdom will result in salvation, eternal salvation. And it's fools that end up in hell. So this is a book calling for more than just good choices. It's calling for choices as God defines them to be made. Now in this prologue, chapters 1 through 9, we hear over and over again the voice of the Father talking either to His Son or to His sons. So look with me in verse 8. Hear, my son, your father's instruction. Forsake not your mother's teaching. Mom and dad are side by side, both of them holding equal authority over this child's life. This child must honor his mom and dad, both of them. And the dad here is saying, I speak, you listen. Mom speaks, you listen. We're on the same page. We're creating an environment in the home where You don't run to mom in order to get certain things or run to dad and try to put us at odds. No, you listen to my voice, you listen to mom's voice, they're all of the same. And if you listen to us, it's going to go well with you, very well with you. Trip, not Paul David Trip. What's his brother's name? Ted. Ted Trip wrote a book called Shepherding the Shepherding the Child's Heart. It's been a long time since I read it. Um, but one of the things that Teresa and I took out of that book, one of the, it's a great book on parenting, just, just giving biblical foundation for a, a worldview of parenting. And it, it says everything starts with the heart. Behavior is merely an overflow of what's already inside. So we as parents need to be mindful not just to correct behavior, but to be shepherding hearts. But one of the things that he pointed us to was in Ephesians chapter 6, it says, citing the Ten Commandments, children, obey your parents. In the Lord, for this is right. Picture a circle. And the border of that circle has obedience. But not only are children to obey their parents in the Lord, for this is right, they are to honor. That's the other side of the circle. And as long as they... Honor and obey mom and dad, all is going well. There's a circle of blessing. And when they disobey, they get outside the circle and things are not well anymore. That's danger world. Wisdom is calling us to live within the circle of blessing. Heed mom and dad's voice. Hear, my son, your father's instruction. Forsake not your mother's teaching, for they are a graceful garland for your head. Pendants for your neck. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. Don't go that way. Now, where this goes, he begins, the father begins to portray wisdom. I want you to be wise, my son. And then, 
Wisdom takes on an image, a woman. Look with me at chapter 1, verse 20. Here's the dad still talking. Wisdom cries in the streets. In the markets, she raises her voice. At the head of the noisy streets, she cries out. At the entrance of the city gate, she speaks. So she is right in the center of all the action. Wisdom wants to be heard. At the center of the commerce, at the center of the politics, which is the city gate, wisdom is right there. Will you listen to me? Will you heed my voice? She's calling out, urging people, longing for simple ones, the simple ones of the men. It's going to be made clear when we get to chapter 8, verse 1. It explicitly says this, To you, O men, verse 4, To you, O men, I call, and my cry is to the children of man, O simple ones, learn prudence. O foolish, learn sense. Men, won't you wake up and start living wisely, she says. Don't you desire me? And it's a lady who's talking. And she's there, if you have eyes to see her, everywhere where you Find yourself, men, all throughout the day. She's always there. But there's another there that we will learn. Dame Folly. She's crying out. Verse 23 of chapter 1. If you turn at my reproof, behold, I will pour out my spirit to you. I will make my words known to you. Because I have called, and you refuse to listen, and have stretched out my hand, and no one is heeded, because you've ignored all my counsel and would have none of my reproof, I also will laugh at your calamity. It sounds so much like Yahweh in Psalm 2. The nations are in an uproar against Yahweh and His anointed, and yet He's up in heaven laughing at them. You think you can stand against me? Right now, wisdom is calling. Will you surrender to me? Will you follow me? Will you heed me? Will you join with me? Look at verse 32. The simple are killed by their turning away, and the complacency of fools destroys them. But whoever listens will dwell secure will be at ease without dread or disaster. So wisdom has a voice. She has a voice. Look with me now at chapter 4, 5 through 9. Get wisdom, says the Father. Get wisdom, my son. Get insight. Do not forget and do not turn away from the words of my mouth. Don't forsake her, and she will keep you. Love her. She will guard you. This is the kind of girl you want around, Lady Wisdom. Keep her close, and your life will flourish. The beginning of wisdom is this. Get wisdom, and whatever you get, get insight. Prize her highly, and she will exalt you. To just raise up young 
our young to be thinking. A life of wisdom is something to pursue. God comes to Solomon. I'll give you whatever you ask. He asks for wisdom. All the riches in the world could have been his. He asks for wisdom. And God says, because you didn't ask for the riches, I'll give you those as well. I want my boys, I want my daughters, six of them, to seek wisdom. Wherever we're at, it can be our quest. Just turn back to chapter 1 one more time. Look at verse 5. It says, let the wise hear and increase in learning. It's, it's kind of wild. You become wise, you're increasing in your wisdom, and if you're increasing, that means you're already wise. A wise man is one who knows what is right and chooses it, and then increasingly does so. And if you find yourselves having been foolish, you can be wise today by making the right choice to turn to God. Let the wise man increase in his knowledge. That is the goal. Look at chapter 7, 4 through 5. Say to wisdom, you are my sister. Call insight your intimate friend to keep you from the forbidden woman and from the adulteress with her smooth words. When I see you're my sister, and then I recognize how this book ends, the book ends, you know, with a wife of noble character, not a sister of noble character, I think this statement here, notice it says, say to wisdom, you are my sister, call insight an intimate friend. Three times in the book of Song of Songs, the bride that is being sought is called my sister, my bride. And I think... This is a term, the way that it's being used, is a term of endearment, of deep intimacy. Like a brother would have a protective instinct for his sister, so too cherish and love Lady Wisdom. But that's the same kind of cherishing and love that a man should have for his girl. That deep-seated intimacy. So even though it says sister, I, I don't think the point is biological sister or sister in your family. I think this is a term of endearment, much like the man is calling in the Song of Songs to his girl, my sister, my bride. It may even have something broader to do with the community of faith, much like we call one another brothers and sisters. There's something intimate here, something endearing. In chapter 8, wisdom makes her call again. She's in first person. Verse 4, to you, O men, I call. Verse 6, hear, for I will speak noble things. She's talking. And then we come to chapter 9, and there's this contrast. Chapter 9, the heading in my ESV says, The way of wisdom. Then if you look at verse 13, the way of folly. And lady wisdom is portrayed now by the Father once again. Wisdom has built her house. She's hewn her seven pillars. She's slaughtered her beast. She's mixed her wine. She's prepared a feast. Will you come eat with her? 
Like Esther asking King Ahasuerus to come and have a feast at her house. Will you come and dine with this darling who will satisfy your soul, who is more precious than all other goods? Whoever is simple, she, he cries out. This is what she's saying. She sent out her young women to call from the highest places in the town. Whoever is simple, let him come in. Turn in here. Please, come. To him who lacks sense, come and eat my bread. Leave your simple ways and live. But then we come to verse 13. The woman folly is loud. She also is calling, but her call is not healthy. It sounds so similar, but it's not the same. The woman folly is loud. She is seductive and knows nothing. She sits at the door of her house. She takes a seat on the highest places of the town. She's in the very same places where wisdom is. Across every intersection, wisdom is calling and foolishness is calling. And you and I have a choice to make all all the day, every moment of every day. Will we align with God's definition of right order, or will we take on a different arrangement where we're ruling our own lives? She's calling to all those who pass, who are going straight on their way. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. Verse 16 is exactly verse 4. Both Lady Wisdom and Dame Folly are saying the same thing, but then notice what follows. To him who lacks sense, she says, stolen water is sweet. And bread eaten in secret is pleasant. But the one who follows her does not know that the dead are there and that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. The depths of Sheol is the Old Testament word for the grave. And over and over again, the image is that foolishness leads to death. And bound up in the adulteress, I mean, the United States, Western media, knows very well the power of a woman's body. It controls men. And our media know it. That's why they put the woman's body up on all the commercials, on billboards everywhere. Because it has this controlling power to make men do things that are wrong. Amazing power that a woman has over a man. And at every point of the day, in every place we're at, wisdom is calling and foolishness is calling. You can't be deaf to it. You're going to listen to one or the other. And one leads to life and one leads to the grave. And the mom and the dad are calling out to their child and saying, I want life for you. The mom and dad who don't instruct are not loving their child. In my decade and a half of active ministry, I've gotten to see just so much pain, so much brokenness. 
I've interacted with so many people that have had just false perceptions about what it means to be a parent. I don't want to force anything on my child. I want them to grow up and be able to make the decision for themselves. They will make decision. But you as a parent are being called to urge them to the way of life. And you're hurting them. You're not loving them to not give them clarity. Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. Praise God for a gospel that can overcome even bad parenting. So why female personification? Two reasons. Number one, this is the most basic reason, and some scholars don't go beyond this, but I think there's more. I already said the more. But here's one reason, is that in the Hebrew language, they choose to portray... Gender can be grammatical gender, masculine or feminine. They can choose to take certain types of entities and make them either feminine or masculine. It doesn't mean there's anything feminine or masculine about that reality. But wisdom is an abstract noun, and almost all abstract nouns in Hebrew are feminine. And you can hear it by the ah ending. Wisdom is chokmah. Law, Torah. That's an abstract noun. It means that it's something, but you can't put your hands on law. You can't put your hands around wisdom. It's abstract. It's not physical. Similarly, understanding, bina, hear the ah, that's feminine. It's something you can gain. It's something you can have. It's something that can be yours, but it's not something that you can take out and show, like a set of keys. It's abstract. And all these abstract nouns, love, ahava, all of them are feminine. So that's one reason I think that wisdom is portrayed as a woman. Because the entity itself is always, it's part of a group of nouns that are portrayed in feminine ways. But there's more to it than that. The book sets it up as if Dame Folly is a prostitute. Or an adulterous wife. She even says, my husband is gone. He's gone on a long trip. He won't be back until the new moon. Come, come into my bed. I've laid it out before you and we can enjoy love until the morning. There's something more going on here. This is a book designed to give prudence to youth. A book that is given to sons. A book written to a youthful male audience for whom women are desirous. And therefore, you have a likening. It's like this. I just got to go to a wedding two weeks ago. They opened up the door, and the bride wasn't there yet. And then she was, she was way back there, and she's like, Going like this, trying to... It wasn't her ideal that the door would be open. Then they closed the door, and then she walked up, and then they opened it again. But, so I saw that, but I was also looking down at the guy. Down the aisle at the guy, and I was remembering. When I was standing you know, up at the stage, 20 years ago, June 11th this year, standing up at the stage, looking down the aisle, and the doors opened up, and my bride came around... 
and there was fire in my soul. (laughs) Song of Songs actually calls it the fire of Yah. The flame of Yah. The flame of Yahweh. That's what love is. There was something in me just bubbling up. That is my girl. And then two nights ago, I was just thinking about it. Just, I, I prayed it as Teresa and I were going to bed, just praising God that he's, this, she's my girl. No one else's. She's mine. And Proverbs up here, the first nine chapters, are given in order to help us understand what the desire for wisdom is supposed to be like. A likening. It's like that, that sense when you were first dating and just to be close to him, just to be close to her, it did something in your soul. It, it fired you up. You longed to see her. You longed to see him. Desire. And it's saying wisdom should be should fire us up. We should be fervent to protect ourselves for this. To keep yourselves for this wisdom. Now, if you've got your paper and a pen, I'm going to give you a test. And... I have, I actually have 40, but 40 Proverbs, we're we're switching into this second part of the book, the main part of the book. I'm only going to read 20 of them, and I just want you to take your pen, and if you are able to finish the second half of the proverb, just put a little scratch mark on your paper. Yes, I got it. Now, don't cheat, okay? If you didn't get it, don't mark it down. And we're just going to have a test to see how well you know some English proverbs. All right? So I'm going to read them, and you just, if, I could, if I'm able to, and then I'll, I'll read the first half, I'll pause, and then I'll say the second half. And if you get it right, just put a check mark. The proverb test. If you can stand the heat, sorry, if you can't stand the heat, (laughs) get out of the kitchen. If you play with fire, you're going to get burned. Lightning never strikes the same place twice. Nice guys finish last. No news is good news. Well, if you can't beat them, join them. Rome was not built in a day. When the going gets tough, the tough get going. Strike while... The iron is hot. The bigger they are, the harder they fall. The early bird catches the worm. The grass is always 
<laughs> Greener on the other side. The pen is mightier than the sword. The road to hell is paved with good intentions. The rotten apple spoils the whole barrel. The squeaking wheel gets the oil. There's more than one way to skin a cat. (laughs) Two wrongs don't make a right. Waste not, want not. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Okay, add up your points. 20 Proverbs. Okay, now raise your hand if you got 16 to 20. Good group. Proverbial geniuses. Okay, how about 11 to 15? Okay, you're proverbially bright. How about 6 to 10? Be honest, come on, 6 to 10. Okay, we've got at least one who's proverbially dull. And uh, any zero to fives? Anybody? Yes? Okay. Um, Proverbially challenged. Okay. Proverbs. We have them, we use them all the time. What are they? We've got an entire book filled with them. What could you tell me about a proverb? How would you define it? We just covered 20 of them. What are they? Just characterize them. Just throw out some words. A memorable short saying. A memorable short saying, yes. Something that pertains to certain circumstances in life. Okay, it, it pertains to certain circumstances in life that most of us will face at different times. Okay, so the, these, are, these have a timelessness about them that can be passed on from parents and grandparents to further generations. Proverbs package timeless generalizations in memorable ways. There's three things that we need for something to be implanted in our mind long term. I mean, it helps at least. One, small bits capable of being chewed. Two, rehearsable bits worded in a way easily restated. Three, understandable bits in a fluent language. Proverbs provide memorable bites or bits. There's a timelessness about them. There's a poetry about them. We can remember them well because they're short and sweet. But the more that you package something short and sweet, the less precise it can be. Let's consider the pithy, memorable, poetic nature of Proverbs. You could say, look before you leap. Or you could say, in advance of committing yourself to a course of action... Consider your circumstances. Which will you take with you? 
How about this one? A stitch in time saves nine. Or, as a writer, I need to learn how to do this better. Because, and probably as a teacher too, because this is more my world, isn't it? So, now there are certain corrective measures for minor problems that when taken early on in a course of action, forestall major problems from arising. A stitch in time saves nine. It's just simpler, easy. Now here's the biggie. And this is really, really important when it comes to reading a book of Proverbs. Because we can carry unnecessary guilt in our lives because we're treating Proverbs as promises. And they're not. They are generalizations that are usually true. In certain situations, they are true. Consider English Proverbs that are both true. In certain settings. Number one, birds of a feather flock together. Opposites attract. Both are true, right? And yet I'm sure we've got couples in here that are more on this spectrum or more on this spectrum. And probably it's a big mixed bag of both. Teresa and I are so alike in how we love to spend our free time, our leisure. And then we're so different in how we keep care of our, how we organize things. Or maybe she organizes and I don't really have organization. (laughs) She's helped me so much. Um, too many cooks spoil the broth. That's true. Teresa reminds us of that. I mean, when with six kids and a husband who just want to help in our kitchen, and it's nine by nine, and it too many make a sour meal, but two heads are better than one. Both are true. He who hesitates is lost. Is it lost or last? Lost. Look before you leap. Well, which is it? Well, depending on the circumstance, one proverb would be right and the other would be wrong. And you and I are called upon to make the right choice, aligning our lives with the right word at the right context. A bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. A man's reach should exceed his grasp. Proverbs take work. You've got to pause and think. What exactly is that saying? To say, I've got, I've got a dollar bill is different than saying, man, if I use this dollar bill right, I could get ten. But you've got one. And right now, that's all you've got. There's birds out there in the bush, but you haven't claimed them yet, but you've got one. Versus a man's reach should exceed his grasp. It will benefit one who has a bigger vision than just the now. 
Now, the book of Proverbs does the exact same thing. This is where we see it most clearly, because these verses are side by side. And they are both true in the right context, but they can't both be true at the exact same time. Notice, answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. Very next verse, answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. And you and I are the ones who are called upon to assess the timeliness of this present situation to know when I should speak to the fool and when I should just be quiet and let him continue in his foolishness. Proverbs are generalizations. First example, the Lord tears down the house of the proud but maintains the widow's boundaries. So we read this verse, and if you take it as a promise and not a truth that works in most situations, then you would think that scriptures like this can't be right. Some move landmarks, they seize flocks and pasture them. They drive away the donkey of the fatherless. They take the widow's ox for a pledge. Or Jesus saying, the Pharisees devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive their greater condemnation. Does God always tear down the house of the proud today? Even in this life, are there those who are proud all the way to the grave and they experience great bounty all the way to the grave? And are there widows who are taken advantage of? Does it happen in our world? It does. But it shouldn't. So here's the principle I draw from this proverb. God opposes the proud and cares for the needy, and He will eventually make all things right. But it would be wrong of us to hold on to this and say, this is what's going to happen Or if I'm a widow, I will never be taken advantage of. God's not saying that. And we would be holding God to something that He didn't declare because this isn't a promise, this is a general truth. That when understood in the context of the fear of the Lord will work and should work in most settings. Second example. Do not be one of those who gives pledges, who puts up security for debts. If you have nothing with which to pay, why should your bed be taken from under you? Just to show of hands, my hand's going to go up. How many of you have a mortgage on your home? We do too. Be not one of those who gives pledges, who puts up security for debts. If you don't have money to pay, why should your bed be taken from under you? Notice the potential in verse 27. Should you never buy a house with a mortgage, which is a secure debt? Will a credit card debt automatically result in God's taking away all your possessions, including your bed? No, there's a principle at stake. 
Here's the principle as I'm reading it in Proverbs 22, 26, and 27. Debts should be taken on very cautiously because foreclosure can be very painful. That's, the, that's just the general truth that, that the sage is wanting us to grasp. And the way that we'll get it and live rightly is underneath the fear of God and working in His world, wanting to use great wisdom and recognizing the danger of debt. I think that's how we're supposed to apply that proverb. Third example, Proverbs 29.2, If a ruler listens to falsehood, all his officials will be wicked. Does this mean that if you're a government official and your boss enters into corruption and listens to those who've lied to him, your future in government is over. And in fact, you are certainly to become corrupt and wicked. It says, if a ruler listens to falsehood, all of his officials will be wicked. Proverbs are a special kind of genre that we have to know how to read. This is stating a truth that happens often. And so here, I think, is the principle. If you're a leader, the ruler who insists on truth will help keep the government honest. It's a principle that you and I can take away. But it doesn't mean if your boss is corrupt that you will by nature become wicked. But it could happen if you're not careful. That's how wisdom works. Now here is... Here is one that we've all seen, heard, and used. Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Now, before we shape a principle, we need to make sure we've got it down. And I'm going to do something that will surprise many. Because I don't think it means what we normally think it means. Popular interpretations of this proverb. I can think of two. Anybody want to be bold? Just say how you've heard someone else apply this proverb. Do everything right as a parent and your kids will go to heaven. Another possibility. I just heard this last week from a friend. Okay. Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. This way he should go, what needs to be recognized is that there's no word for should at this point in the Hebrew text. In fact, what it actually says is his way. Train a child according to his way, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. And so that raises the possibility, at least in the minds of some, what would, it, what would his way look like? Well, every child has a bent. And a parent has a responsibility to recognize what that bent is and raise the child up in accordance with their bent. And when they're old, they'll be flourishing in that. When I was a child, I sang all the time. 
I, I remember in seventh grade talking to my mom, and I said, maybe I'll be a teacher someday. You're a teacher. Your dad's a teacher. Maybe I could be a teacher. And I, I remember, at least in my seventh grade mind, my mom saying, you know, I don't know about teaching, but, but music, that's for you. Keep singing. I sang all the time. I have a daughter who's like me, for good and for ill. <laughs> so she, um, and I mean, this controlled me. I, teaching was not on my framework at all. I went to school as a music major. I was going to be the next lead singer for Petra. <laughs> that, that was my goal. And then I entered into a classical music department and they told me, who told you you could sing? That's what they, that's what they said to me. Um, so then I became a Bible major, and uh, it was like heaven. So, notice, word-for-word rendering, train a child according to his way, even when he grows old, he will not depart from it. Most translations don't account for this word, his. And that raises a question in my mind. Here's the proverb, train a child according to his way, and when he's old, he will not depart from it. My question is, in Proverbs, what is his way? What is the way of the child? In Proverbs, there's only two ways. There's the way of wisdom and the way of foolishness. That's it. There's only two options. Which is the way of the child? That's my question. Look at this. The righteousness of the blameless keeps his way straight. But the wicked will fall by his own wickedness. Whoever walks in the path of the uprightness fears the Lord, but he who is devious in his ways despises him. The highway of the upright turns aside from evil. Whoever guards his way preserves his life. Two ways. Well, which is the way of the child? Here's what we learn. When left to themselves, the young lack judgment and have hearts filled with foolishness. I have seen among the simple and I have perceived among the youths a young man lacking sense. That's what I look, that's what I find when I go and look at the youth. A young man lacking sense. Folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline drives it from him. Without discipline, the young bring disgrace to their mothers. The rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child left to himself will bring shame to his mother. Parents are thus exhorted to discipline their children and to instruct them in wisdom. The Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, to give prudence to the simple and knowledge to the discretion and discretion to youth. Discipline your son, for there is hope. He's still breathing. There is hope. Do not set your heart on putting him to death. Notice that contrast. If you don't discipline him, death. The rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child left to himself brings shame. So I say... Give training to the child according to his way. Even when he grows old, he will not depart from it. The way of the child, as I look at this book, seems more negative than positive. It's not the inward bent of a child. You know, he's really good at soccer. We'll put him in every soccer league. 
But I'm also cautious to think this is a proverb that is the way he should go. Because his way throughout Proverbs is not a way of wisdom. The child's way by themselves is a way of foolishness. Where the parent needs to enter in and curb it. So, we are always training. You can't think you're not shaping worldviews. You're always training your kid to think about what is most valuable, what is most important, what is right and what is wrong, even by your silence. So this proverb appears to me to be an ironic command that warns parents of the result of not establishing standards and boundaries for their children. So here's the principle. Let a boy do what he wants and he will become a self-willed adult incapable of change. Train a child according to his way, and when he is old, he won't depart from it. So parents, get on the ball and start disciplining your kids. That's the call of the book of Proverbs. But this is not a promise either. Hear that. This is not a promise. It doesn't say that poor parenting will certainly result in wicked kids. Why? Because the gospel is real. The power of the gospel can transform a child who is not raised well. And all of us stumble in our parenting, but that doesn't mean we're bad parents. Oh, we're going to see this. It's, it's beautiful. When I get to Proverbs 31, I just learned this this week too. It, I've never read Proverbs 31 like I read it this week. And I, I hope when we get there, it'll just, especially for you women in here, it will give you deep Um, solace that the perfect woman is actually more possible than might seem possible. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. Proverbs are not promises. Here's Solomon's Short statement about what I think Proverbs are for. A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a setting of silver. The right word at the right time. The right nugget of truth that will fit this particular situation to help give me clarity and guidance to know what would honor God in this moment. Being wise doesn't mean checking a whole ledger off of, yep, I did that, I did that, I did that. Because life is filled with Eight zillion choices that are not found in Scripture at all. So we need to be able to step back and under the fear of God, try to gain discernment about which word do I grab at this particular time to give clarity to how I should respond in this situation. What happens when we say the wrong things at the wrong time or follow the wrong step at the wrong time? Like a thorn that goes up into the hand of a drunkard is a proverb in the mouth of a fool. So he's drunk and he doesn't even know the pain that is being caused. The thorn is being shoved up inside and he doesn't even recognize the damage that is being done. Like a thorn that goes up into the hand of a drunkard is a proverb in the mouth of a fool. It's hurting 
this person. And he doesn't even recognize it. Proverbs is a book that can be read every day because we need wisdom. But wisdom is not laws, and wisdom is not proverb. Uh, wisdom is not uh, promises. These are not legal guarantees, at least for the now. But they are truths, truths that are right that need to be rightly applied in the right context. And when we do, God will be honored, and we will be satisfied, and, and order will be established around us. And then we step back and we praise God for the gospel that comes in while we were still sinners, takes jars of clay, not, not fancy china, takes jars of clay in order to show that the surpassing power is not from us but from him. We are not the wise ones. Jesus is our wisdom and our righteousness. And so even in our lack of wisdom, in our living out in foolishness, what do we do? We grasp onto the gospel to the one who is our wisdom. We count on the fact that God is looking at him through him when he looks at us, and then we also tap into that wisdom and ask God to help us from this point forward to help us be more wise, to increase in our knowledge, increase in our wisdom, all under the fear of God. So we've covered just some basics about how to be thinking about Proverbs. And I, there's more exhortations to follow. I have to ponder whether I'm going to talk about spanking, for example. I've got to, how to fit, I I don't know. If I get tons of emails that say, yes, do that, then I could. Um, But Proverbs is the book that talks about the rod and how to understand the rod rightly. Um, And then this beautiful woman who fears the Lord. And then Jesus as our wisdom. All that's part of the book of Proverbs. Um, If any of you... Oh, two things. This week, on my website, Daroshi Meyer, as in Jason Meyer, daroshi-meyer.org, all these Old Testament surveys, uh, lectures, starting back with Genesis, are going to start to go live. And all the PowerPoints will be there. But if at any point you want PowerPoints before the audio goes live on there, Don't ever hesitate to write me. I can email it to anybody. May the Lord bless you. You are a, I I, I just say, you are a joy to me. This is a joy for me to be able to share, and I I love you. What we do up here with these prayer requests so matters to my soul, and I I pray that God would feed you in what I'm able to give week by week. May, May God bless you. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this message from the ministry of Dr. Jason DeRoshi. Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Jason DeRoshi. For more information on Bethlehem College and Seminary, we invite you to visit online at bcsmn.org. For more information on Dr. DeRoshi, visit online at deroshi-meyer.org. Proclaiming the kingdom and treasuring a God who rules, saves, and satisfies through covenant for His glory in Christ.